This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 269. Today we speak with Dr. Diane Poitras about Johannes Ecolampadius. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 269. My name is Camden Busey. I'm recording once again from Wheaton, Illinois. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the program Jason Pickard, who is with RUF International, Reformed University Fellowship down in Texas A&M. He's also a graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome back, Jason. Hi, Cannon. Thanks. It's great to be back with you. Yeah, it's a, it's a joy to have you on. Uh, we just uh, were able to talk with Daryl Hart just a few weeks ago, at least in uh, uh, website time, uh, <laughs> not too long ago in recording time, but it's great to have you back. We're going to be speaking about a great topic, a neglected individual in the history of the church, and we're very pleased to welcome Dr. Mrs. Diane Poitras uh, to the program to speak about Johannes Ecolampadius. Welcome to the program, Dr. Poitras. It's great to speak with you and to have you on for the first time. Oh, this is quite an honor for me as well. Thank you. Well, thank you for all that you've done here. I've already mentioned that you've uh, done some work on Johannes Ecolampadius, a German reformer, uh, one in which uh, has a fun name, and we'll get into that, but uh, one that also has not received as much attention as some other figures, although he is highly significant in the history of the Church and especially within the Reformed tradition. As we begin today, I do want to say we have two works in front of us. We're going to try to try to work through them um, at a modest pace, uh, but uh, to try to give you a feel for both. The first is a book that you can get a hold of uh, through the Westminster Bookstore and other great uh, bookstores, and that is Reformer of Basel, The Life, Thought, and Influence of Johannes Ecolampadius. It's published by Reformation Heritage Books. Here, um, just uh, fairly recently, I believe, was this published in 2011? Yes, yeah, yes. and uh, this is um, uh, a, a work that is relative to um, Dr. Poitras's dissertation, which is titled Johannes Ecolampadius's Exposition of Isaiah, chapters 36 through 37, which was written at Westminster Theological Seminary in 1992. Um, Mrs. Poitras, could you um, just explain for us a little bit about uh, the process of publishing this work? What What is the book's relationship specifically to the dissertation, and what's different in, in this most recent publication? Um, well, the most obvious difference is the size. <laughs> <laughs> the dissertation was 800 pages, and um, the book is it's far shorter. It's only a... Oh, 200, uh, probably 200, about 200 pages, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. So it's much shorter uh, in length, and so it's more of a summary of a lot of the things that had already been uh, researched in, in detail uh, mm-hmm. for the dissertation. There was a rumor when I was a student at Westminster that the page limit for the Westminster PhD was the result of your dissertation. Is there any truth to that? <laughs> Yes, unfortunately, yes, that's true. <laughs> but the problem was that I had several different um, doctor fathers, um, the European 
um, and uh, the advisors, uh, because I, I was at it for so long because I was married and I had children while I was doing it. And, um, so they, uh, each had their own idea about what ought to be included. And so as each person took over from the other and, and had me, uh, add what their particular interest was, it just got longer and longer and longer. <laughs> so, yeah. It ended up being 800 pages. We can understand uh, how that can happen, and what yes. we really have here is is really a comprehensive work in, in many ways. The dissertation has a, a lengthy historical overview of Ecolampadius and his work. Um, we'll get into into that in just a moment, but um, there's also here a, a translation um, of the Isaiah Commentary, chapters 36 through 37, which is itself about 100 pages. And chapter 3 is a, a lengthy section on hermeneutics, of course, um, treading into the territory of, of your husband's work, uh, Dr. Vern Poitras. Uh, much useful information here looking at, at Eclampadius on hermeneutics. And then chapter 4 is quite interesting. It's a chapter on theology, kind of a reconstruction of what a systematic theology uh, or detailed theological work from Eclampadius might have looked like. So that's just to provide an overview um, for the listeners who don't have the dissertation in front of them, or for people even that have read the book or would plan to read Reformer of Basil here from RHB, but would like uh, an even fuller treatment and a more academic, um, documented uh, treatment of his work. So we have really almost three dissertations plus a translation <laughs> in one, and uh, it's, it's uh, really an important and substantial piece. Now, one, th- one thing I was struck... Um, was just tremendously encouraged by um, was your introduction and your acknowledgments. A lot of times we, when we read dissertations or we come across books, we read the typical fare, and, it, and it's heartfelt. And people want to acknowledge those that have been so effective and uh, instrumental in their lives. But you've already mentioned uh, um, your sons and um, working on this dissertation while uh, caring for and raising a family. Um, could you just uh, describe uh, your your relationship? I I I have to bring this up just because how how encouraging it was the way you spoke about your husband and the support that he gave you. How did he help you along in in this dissertation? And and why do you call him your house lamp? <laughs> there there would be a couple of different aspects to that. One would be just very pragmatically. Um, I always put my family as my first calling and duty in terms of that was my covenant in marriage. That's my um, responsibility after having children. So um, I got up about 5 in the morning and worked till about 7, 7.30 in the morning um, on the dissertation each day. And that was about all the time I had to work uh, each day. And my husband would get the boys up and give them breakfast uh, during that time. And that was my uh, my time to write each day. Um, that was all I had. So he gave me that uh, time, really. Um, and then, so very pragmatically, he helped me. Then there was a time when um, I, I just said, I can't do this. There's, there's just too much um, in my lap in terms of trying to uh, run a house and take care of my boys and um, there's so much in terms of having to learn languages and do these translations, and it, it, it's just too, I quit. <laughs> I wrote a a, um, a paper 
a letter of resignation <laughs> and withdrawal from the program and was going out to the car and he said, please, let's just pray and take, take it, just wait one more day before we do this. <laughs> Yeah, so he, you know, he would just encourage me and and help me and say, no, you know, with the Lord's work, this is the Lord's calling. You can do this, and so he would be praying for me. He and quite physically, you know, and he was helping with the children, but also um, then in terms of um, over a, a longer period of time, in terms of being a housewife. He's the one that has brought the the light of God's Word into our home, into our lives, into how we view things, how we make decisions, um, what we do, what we don't do. Um, so he has been that, that sort of walking Word of God in our home, in our midst, to tell us, um, this is the way walk in it, you know, in order in that sense of reflecting God's word and and thinking God's thoughts after him and then um, preaching that and teaching that and demonstrating that to us in our midst. So it had several different aspects uh, when I referred to him as our house life. Mm-hmm. Now that connects obviously with the figure we want to speak about today, Johannes Echolampadius. Uh, could you describe for us a little bit about who he was and 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 uh, particularly his name? This wasn't his birth name, was it? Um, no, it was not. Uh, he was um, a, a reformer, one of the uh, peers of Swingley and Luther, uh, living at that same time, at that very exciting time of the Reformation, you know, born in Germany. So actually his uh, his birth name uh, was uh, Johannes um, Heuschein, or Hauschein. There's several different um, ways that he's been referred to historically, but... Um, because he was born in Germany, um, the German name means house light, house shine. And when he uh, began uh, accepting and following the uh, humanistic um, uh, thoughts of the day, uh, which emphasized original languages, um, including the Greek and, and the Hebrew, it was popular at that time for people um, to identify themselves with the humanistic movement by um, giving their their name in Greek rather than in whatever their initial lang- uh, language, home language was. So an exact translation of house light into Greek would be, from house shine, would be echo lampadius. And uh, other people did this as well. For example, Philip um, Melanchthon, we all call him Melanchthon, but his name was uh, Schwarzer. And which <laughs> that, that was his birth name, which means uh, black earth, and mm-hmm. so he translates it into the Greek melanchthon, which was uh, uh, black earth in Greek. So uh, it was not uncommon at that time to to do that, um, and it's just a, an exact translation from the the German meaning of his name. Well, you you mentioned the humanist uh, connection. Uh, clearly, those are big. Uh, features in education and and that brought about one of the factors that allowed for and encouraged and developed the Reformation. But how was Echolampadius educated, um, especially in his early life? What influence did that have upon him as he grew as a man and began to uh, enter into scholarship? 
Uh, well, um, the Lord gave him great grace in many ways and many gifts. Um, he was clearly a very intelligent child from the time he was little, and um, because of that, he was allowed to go to um, the more scholarly schools rather than just a vocational uh, track of schooling. So he, uh, after his original early um, training at a, very, at a young age, he was then sent to a Latin school um, where they put young men that w- were in a university track. Um, and that um, was a, a typical of that time that they would get up at you know, 5 in the morning and start studying Latin, go to Latin class at that time, and then have uh, very rigorous studies throughout the day. But where he went, he happened to, in God's grace and provision, have a particular teacher who was a humanist, um, which meant at that time that he was uh, uh, using the the new tools of original languages and classical resources um, to uh, bring them into a, a more... More direct and, and uh, fuller understanding of what um, the earlier teachers had had been in, particularly even in the church, um, so that it wasn't just a repetition of what did the people in the last generation uh, say, but now we could go back to the uh, the sources. Ed Fontes is one of the cries of the that particular time period, going back to the fountain, to the sources. Uh, so because he was trained in that, um, he had an interest from a very early age in uh, the classics. And that then led later to um, a very full and um, in-depth understanding of the patristics, which again then helped in uh, revolutionizing his understanding of Scripture as compared to all the accretions that had um, come through the Middle Ages. So that, anyway, that's how I would see that, that that early training helped to point him in that uh, uh, direction, kind of skipping over the Middle Ages and going back to an early patristics time. Mm-hmm. No, that's really helpful, and it situates him, I think, in the in the entire milieu of the Reformation. We come to see how he came about, and and how and that'll help us, I, th- I think, understand how he was influential here. Um, what what did he do? Was he always a scholar? Did he have any jobs? Did did um what else was an influence upon him as he as he grew up? Um. Well. Uh there were several different little turns uh, that took place before he actually entered the the major calling of God on his life in terms of being a reformer. Um, at one point, he was a tutor in a, uh, for a rich man, and uh, this kind of fit into that particular period of time in the sense of um, people would buy... Uh, ecclesiastical offices for their children, and that would give them a guaranteed income um, because the, the whole parish would be sending money into that particular church, and whoever was the vicar or head of that church would have that money and, and have a solid, steady income. So those positions were were appointed, and the appointments were gotten by 
by bribery and buying uh, the, the position. So oftentimes wealthy people would buy that position for a, a child uh, as a guaranteed income for that child. Well, those children needed to be trained in what their responsibilities were and what, what the whole church was about. So part of Echo and Party's responsibility in, in training this man's children was to train them in their ecclesiastical responsibilities since he had bought offices for them. So that was one situation, uh, but that also put him in contact with a lot of wealthy people and uh, how how wealth was used and uh, the types of networking that goes on at that level. Um, at another point, he um, was a, um, a parish penitential uh, priest so that he would hear people's confessions. And this was very, very influential on him for the rest of his life because he, he really came to despise the mechanical confession of you say this, do this, and then you're forgiven. Um, without any true repentance, without any dealing with uh, uh, who is God and what does that mean in your life. Uh, so I think those uh, those were two of his early work. He also was appointed as a, um, a preacher for a while, and back in his hometown in Germany, um, they were... Uh, appointing at that point uh, um, because you had people like these children who were um, vicars and heads of, of uh, parishes who didn't have a clue how to preach. Um, they were allowing young men to be paid a small pittance to come in and preach. Well, one of the uh, more reformed-minded peoples of that time understood that this would be a wonderful opportunity to bring the gospel and the truth of God's Word uh, by placing young men who knew the gospel in all these places where there were just sort of empty um, preaching lecterns. Uh, so he was one of those people that got appointed to uh, be allowed to preach in a, a, a place where there was an empty um, station yeah. in, in a church. It seems that, that God used him and appointed him to all sorts of interesting positions and, and gave him all sorts of opportunities to exercise his gifts. At one point, he collaborated with Erasmus, did he not? What what was his involvement with Erasmus, and, and what was his work in the New Testament there? Yeah, that, that's uh, very uh, little is known <laughs> that uh, he had such a significant contribution to that. Um, Erasmus, of course, was taking the um, available Greek manuscripts that he could find at that time and uh, putting them into a one finalized uh, uh, Greek uh, edition of the uh, New Testament. Um, in doing that, you know, he had to compare a lot of, of things, but he also wanted to make sure that what was being quoted uh, was uh, and uh, uh, well coordinated with what the the Old Testament said. And because Echolampadius was known to be an expert in languages in both Greek and Hebrew, as well as in Latin and German, and and he knew Aramaic as well. Um, one of the things that they that Erasmus wanted him for was to to, uh, to check 
on the uh, quotes uh, that were being done in Greek of the Old Testament and make sure that they were um, on target. And if there were, it would also help, obviously, when you're comparing manuscripts to know which is closer to the uh, actual Old Testament um, original uh, writing. And then the other thing that he uh, wanted him for was to check the uh, theology and to make sure that what they were saying wasn't out of line. Well, that became extremely controversial um, and was very significant for the whole a reforming of the church, actually, because in doing that translation, or having that translation available in Greek, they could see that Jerome had mistranslated in the Latin quite a few things that the Catholic Church had then built on, building it on the mistakes of the Latin translation. Um, for example, Hail Mary, full of grace, that's not what it says uh, in the Greek. So, um, they had to go back and they'd say, well, is this really, you know, what the Greek is? Because it's really, really different from what the Latin translation of Jerome was. And that um, then contradicted and, and undercut the whole idea of Mary having any, being any kind of a, a repository of grace, because it just wasn't there. It wasn't there in the original Greek. So they, when the uh, Erasmus was doing this, Part of the the um, job that Ethel and had was to check the Hebrew, but also to check the um, uh, theological implications and to discuss those with Erasmus. And then also, um, he he looked over and edited the uh, the Greek too to make sure that there weren't mistakes as it's going to go to the printer. Mm. Could you speak a little bit about uh, his involvement at uh, Alta Munster? Um, is his time in the monastery, and then uh, maybe connect that to uh, his marriage and how that came about? Uh, Altamonster is a, a very mysterious part of his life. Um, I, I, could, I need to back up just a little to say sure. that he was uh, appointed to one of the highest positions that any pastor could ever have at that time, and that would be to to a cathedral position um, as the pastor, the head pastor of a uh, imperial city cathedral church. Um, so this is an extremely significant position for somebody just coming out of uh, seminary at that time. Um, and he was only in that position a very short time when he resigned. Um, and that position had inc- included not just uh, uh, preaching, but it would have been uh, shepherding the flock, of course, that's there, but also giving lectures and doing uh, publications. I mean, it would have just have been a very influential and significant position. And he he resigned the whole thing and entered a monastery. Um, there's a lot of possibilities as to why he did that at that particular time. Um, you could look at it from a very uh, pragmatic way and say, well, it was getting dangerous at that time uh, to continue because uh, he had agreed publicly with Luther 
uh, and Luther was now being condemned, which by inference he would also be condemned. So uh, do you stay and, and wait for them to depose you, or do you just resign yourself and say, I don't want to cause the church trouble, and uh, so I'll just leave before that happens? Um, do you? So that's one possibility of what was going on. Uh, another uh, was that he just spiritually was going through a time where he wanted to go through what his own stand was, was he willing to die for a reformed position? And had he thought through all of the implications, was there any way that he could stay in the Catholic Church and continue to teach uh, what he understood as biblical, um, or uh, would he have to be separated from it? And would he do the separation, or would they do it? You know, there were so there were spiritual questions like that that may have been at the forefront. It may have been a point of just who he was as a person that he was a very quiet, scholarly man who just enjoyed doing um, translations of Chrysostom and, and other patristics, and it may have been that um, being in that kind of a very public position, he was overwhelmed and burned out and just wanted to go away where he could just be a scholar and hide. But I, I think the thing that the Lord brought to my mind as I looked at that was that no matter what, the Lord did not want him comfortable but he wanted him crucified, and that that was a a lesson I think uh, not just for him, but something that I was able to take away for myself as well. That it's that's not God's plan to to just keep us in a very comfortable, protected position, um, but we have to um, be crucified to the world and to ourselves in order to live for Christ. So I saw that as what God was doing with him at Altminster, at the mm-hmm. at the monastery. He um, he thought that he'd go there to be comfortable, but it, it did not work that way, I and mean, that was not the Lord's plan. Um, and he ended up having to flee that place as well. And But after that, I guess I mentioned in the book, uh, but after that, um, he became sort of that uh, that steel sword that you see in some of those marine <laughs> advertisements yeah. the one that's been in the fire and hammered and 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 melted and there's nothing left except the bare steel itself uh he had when he left the the uh, monastery he really had nothing he went and fled to hide in a castle of a protector for a while, but he he had to leave everything. He even left his reading glasses and all of his parchments and everything. He he had nothing at that point. He had no job. He had no no standing uh, in the church. He, you know, the church that he loved, the people of God that he loved, you know, that he wasn't allowed to be uh, considered part of them or, or minister to them. He couldn't be near his family. That would endanger them. Um, he really could not befriend people because, again, it would endanger them. Um, he couldn't do his scholarly work. He could. He just everything that was him was stripped away from him. He had nothing, um, and obviously no uh, credence in front of anybody. That he 
couldn't look at him and say, oh, isn't that a wonderful person? God had stripped him of absolutely everything. Uh, but that was the point at which then he became this, this sharpened, beaten sword that nothing, nothing uh, could uh, come against. He had um, learned to lean on God and God alone. And in the midst of that, um, <laughs> the the world, the devil in the flesh could not fight against him. He, he uh, nothing uh, could uh, defeat uh the, the power of God that was then um, within him and had set him on fire and brought him to understand and lean on God alone and mm-hmm. not on his own flesh in any way. Now, that clearly that's a lesson I think that would have had to have been learned by his wife as well. She did not have a life of comfort. Uh, could you describe her a little bit and um, her uh, uh, interesting position among the Reformers? Yeah. Yeah, uh, now he didn't marry his wife until much later, Mm -hmm. um, much later in his life, actually. Um, And she uh, had uh, been a fairly wealthy home, and uh, she mm, fell in love with the schoolmaster in the town of Basel, and he was a reformer and uh, taught the kids uh, reformed ideas and uh, classics and a humanistic approach to um, understanding literature and, and history and uh, scripture. But he um, he died fairly young after they had one child. And then um, it was uh, that Echo and Patius, at a rather advanced age, um, asked her as a widow to marry him. And they were married three years before he died, and uh, they had one child each year of their marriage. So she had one child from the previous marriage, and then three with uh, Echo and Patius. And then she was widowed again um, uh, when he died. Um, At that point, the plague was just making rounds regularly, even when Echo and Patius was in college. Uh, there was one year that the whole college was moved, uh, um, sort of uh, like a TEE <laughs> um, classes. They, they had, everybody had to go away and, and do their um, lessons at, by extension because um, the plague was in the city. It just came and devastated all of Europe constantly mm. uh, through those that period of time. Um, so after he had died, the plague came through and, and killed lots of people again, and, um, including, let's see, uh, Capito's wife died, and uh, Capito was uh, Wolfgang Capito in Germany was very down uh, crest at that point, and Jutzer uh, decided that uh, uh, Capito ought to marry Echo and Patius' widow. Uh, and uh, he was afraid that Capito would fall in love with this Anabaptist uh, woman, and uh, so he kind of tried to push things along a little more in the direction of uh, Vibrandas, that was the wife's name of Compadius. Capito did uh, meet her, and and he did fall in love with her, and did ask her to marry him, and uh, so she went and then had her four children. She had more children by Capito and helped to raise the children that his wife 
uh, had had as well that were in the home at that point. Um, they were married a few years, and then um, the plague came through again, and it was been in, in Strasbourg. At that point, um, Capito died, um, and so she was widowed for the third time. At that point, um, Buser's wife, who was her very good friend, was also stricken, and you usually had, depending on which form of it you had, you had maybe three to seven days to live after you were stricken with it, depending on the form of it. Um, and her abuser's wife, Elizabeth, asked Vibrandus, the, um, the widow of uh, Keller and, and Equipatis and Capita, to come to her bedside, which she did in, in her mourning dress because she was still mourning her husband who just died. And there on, on her deathbed, Elizabeth looked at Vibrandus and, and she looked at Butzer and she said, I want you two to get married when I die. And, of course, they were both shocked. But yeah. um, after, after Elizabeth died, um, that next week, uh, several of her own children died. She wanted uh, Vibrandus to raise her children, and she trusted her with them. But uh, most of her own children died that following week as well as mm-hmm. the plague. But Vibrandus did marry Butzer, and they did have uh, more children, together, and then she also helped to raise um, Bucer's children that Elizabeth had uh, had left as well. Um, they took in her mother. They took in Peter Martyr um, and as part of their family as well. Um, they were Because of the plague, people often took in relatives or others. Uh, of course, that wasn't the situation for Peter Martyr. For him, it was just being a refugee. And then Butzer um, was exiled um, uh, from Germany and went to England and helped the, the sweet little King uh, um, Edward VI, who was sort of the new Josiah of England, to set up the Reformation there, and Peter Martyr went with him. Um, so she was living with all the children back in Germany while he was in exile in England. And uh, he finally asked her, you know, can't you just get the family and move up here? And she uh, she did go up there uh, at one point, um, but it was only to nurse him, actually, until he died as well. So she had four husbands, all of them reformers, all of them died. Um, and then she took what was left of the family uh, that had not married or grown up and went back to Basel. Now, in terms of her own faith, we know uh, only very sketchily uh, a few little points here and there because uh, she didn't write books. Um, and we just have a couple little notes of, um, from letters that she wrote to uh, her children. Um, but just, you know, about them staying in line when they're away at college, basically. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, keep their minds on, on, on God and their studies um, and not to be spendthrifts and uh, extravagant in their living and so on. Mm-hmm. But So we don't have a whole lot. We just know of her faithfulness and of her, that the different husbands praising her in terms of what a, a faithful wife she was and how how much um, she was an addition to their ministry in that sense. 
I was just curious, talking about him resigning from the uh, cathedral and his time in the uh, in the in the monastery. What were um, um, do we know? Did he have access to Luther's works? What, was he reading stuff as well as kind of in, that influenced and pushed him towards the Reformation? Um, yes, he and Luther were both reading each other's things actually at the same time. Okay. Okay. And um, he, at one point, uh, said oh, he didn't see anything in Luther's writings that he disagreed with, um, and that he um, he actually wrote a, a, an anonymous paper, or either that or he edited one that was written by somebody else, we're not sure, uh, that was a defense of Luther, which is one of the things that um, could have been seen as getting him into trouble at that point. Um Luther also wrote that uh, he really appreciated what Echo and Pontius wrote and wished that um, one of the papers he'd written would be um, printed in, in Wittenberg so that it would uh, crush the, the Papists in this particular area um, that he had written the tract on. So they were reading each other's things, and they were in constant correspondence with each other, particularly as time went on and, and the the Lord's Supper became more, a more central issue. But the, the interesting thing was, and if, if you look at Ed Zwingli and Echolampadius and Luther, it appears that the Holy Spirit was working in them independently and yet um, in parallel ways. And that, to me, is just so exciting to see how God uh, will pour out His Spirit, and that when the time is... Uh, come for him to accomplish a particular work. He doesn't need men to influence men. He He's the one that begins directing them and teaching them, even independently of one another, um, through his own word and through his spirit in a, in a un- united way, so that they were all coming to the same conclusions at the same time and seeing the same things and being bold in proclaiming those same things without really even um, being influenced by one another that much. Dr. Porther, uh, in line with that, I'm just curious, you know, he's a contemporary with Luther and with Zwingli, and yet, at least in the uh, North American uh, realm, so to speak, he's not nearly as well known as either of those two men. Any thoughts on why that is? Uh <laughs> That's a, a, a question I, I would like to have answered someday, too. But, um, I mean, there's the obvious, one big obvious answer is that is, Satan always loves to hide that which is of uh, the, the most benefit and uh, the most clearly ref, uh, reflection of the glory of God. Um, so I think that, um, it, you know, that there has been... Um, um, uh, uh, a satanic um, veiling, in some ways, of uh, of the, the beauty and truth that uh, that was present in this. Um, in a very pragmatic way, I could say, well, he never wrote a systematic theology. He wrote mostly commentaries. Um, so uh, when uh, Calvin came along, uh, that sort of was what was picked up more. Uh, because it was more easily accessible. Um, and yet, um, I don't know if we'll get into this at some point, but Calvin is really um, a, uh, a 
son of Echo and Plautius in many ways and has just copied him, um, which has not been discovered or explored um, previously. Um, it was something that I was surprised at when I began doing my research. It was not something that I expected to find, but nevertheless did find that um, that Calvin uh, pretty much uh, echoed uh, all of Echo and Pottius ideas, um, perhaps in a more systematic format, um, but even his commentaries, and I mentioned this in the book, uh, that he copied Echo and Pottius commentaries, and sometimes word for word, so that um, all of his ideas, uh, sometimes be, you can even see the word for word formation, not just in the commentaries, but even in the um, the theological concepts of um, Oh, for example, being taken up into the heavenlies in um, the Lord's Supper. That's a quote from Echo and Pontius in 1525. Um, and you can see, um, oh, there's about eight or ten um, articles of, uh, of the or, um, organization of the church and worship that uh, Calvin uh, presented in 1537. Well, they're the same as exactly the same <laughs> um, as the ones that Eclampadius presented um, in his uh, ordinances of, of discipline that he presented to Basel. Um, even the way that he um, suggests having a weekly meeting on a Thursday of the uh, elders um, it's, that was, Eglampadius said, Thursdays. It was even the same day. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thursdays. So if you look at them side by side, um, everything is just, you know, in terms of weekly communion rotating among parishes, uh, how they did excommunication, uh, congregational psalm singing, even the liturgy, uh, uh, the way it's worked out was the same as Eglampadius liturgy of 1525. Uh, the setup of a catechism, congregational psalm singing, um, setting up a secular court for marriage uh, um, discussions, um, having the citizens sign a confession of faith. All of those things were in Basel. Um, and and he has them all in his ordinances that he presents in Geneva. So if you, if you do a parallel, which... I mean, I, that was not the center of my dissertation. It was just something that I happened to run into as I was doing the research. You, you see that Echo, that really Calvin is a son of Echolampadius in, in everything, and, and theologically. I mean, Echolampadius had a completely developed covenant, a unilateral covenant. Uh, he had a covenant of redemption. He had everything was already... Um, filled out in a mature way in terms of election, the sovereignty of God, um, uh, how, how there's just one church through all the ages, the, the uh, connection of baptism and circumcision, one covenant of grace. Uh, you know, just everything that we attribute to Calvin was already there in, in mature form in Echo and Pontius. So 
um, that's a research that is remains to be done by somebody. Um, as I said, I just happened upon it as I was doing my own work. Um, it's, it's fascinating to see that. Uh, but that, going back to your original question, that may be one of the reasons is that the, um, Calvin became sort of the, uh, a clearer spokesman of the ideas that Echolampadius had put forth um, in a very um, revolutionary time. It, by the time Calvin came along, things were a little more settled, whereas everything was brand new. It had never been done. There were never elders until Akonpari started pushing it. There was never this uh, sense of, of, of the excommunication necessity of, and, and Zwingli picked that up from him, and Jutzer picked it up from him and Calvin. That was all initiated by Akonpari, um, and how it was done, and where and when, and so on, and what the topics were that you could be excommunicated by, and who would do it, and what the the connection was between the church and the state in doing that. That was all under Echo and Patius, um organization, and it was all brand new. It was all no, it had never been done. So uh, by the time it got to Calvin, things were more formulated, and I think that may be why he superseded Echolampadius in that sense, but if you go back to that time, Echolampadius was as famous, if not more so, than Calvin. Uh, and so, it, it, you know, it's just later on that we've we've lost what this great godly man has said and done. But from the little reading I've done in your work, I uh, you have persuaded me, and it just seems really clear of Calvin's influence. But I wonder if you might help us think as a historian, because there's a there's a quote in the Institute, Calvin's Institutes, where he claims because of Luther's uh, caution that he didn't read Zwingli or Ockleonpatius for many years. And I'm just wondering. I mean, it seems that must have been a very early in his time, because his, the influence, like you said, it seems pretty obvious. So I'm just wondering, how do you? Why do you think Calvin said that? What? Well, I know that he, he said that he read Echo and Patius, and that he said, for example, that he didn't see any reason to write on the Lord's Supper because it had already been done so expertly expertly okay. by Echo and Patius. So in terms of you know, that when he began reading him, I don't know. He lived in he lived in Basel at the time that he was writing his very first uh, draft of uh, the Institutes, and it was only a couple of years after Echolampadius had died. So he saw the complete setup. So in some ways, um, in I'm not sure what, what he was reading or not reading. Nobody knows really at that point, I guess. But he was living in the, a complete milieu of Echolampadius' ideas when he was in Basel. Everything was in place in terms of the elders and the, the um, discipline and the the covenant uh, um, and the citizens' oaths and it, it was all there. And then when he went to Strasbourg, of course, there were Echolampadius children. I mean, he was there with Bucer and Capito, and there were Echolampadius children. And um, Bucer and and Capito were making sure that all of the pastors in Strasbourg had copies of all of the commentaries of Echolampadius. So I can't imagine that Calvin didn't have those and that he didn't hear people quoting them all over the place because all the pastors would have had copies of them for their own preaching resources. 
So I'm not exactly sure, you know, so, when, yeah, so at think, what point. I was going to say, so it seems like we could at least say, even if he was unaware of it, he was really influenced by Aquilón Pares' his whole career. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Let's speak about um, his hermeneutics a little bit. Uh, clearly, he was a big influence upon other figures as well. How or what? What is unique to Eclampadius's uh, approach to biblical interpretation, and how did that have an influence on the Reformation? Um, well, he kind of skipped over the. He didn't kind of. He did. <laughs> he skipped over the middle Middle Ages and went back to the patristics, which um, was a new and refreshing way of approaching Scripture, obviously, um, because up to that point they were using um, what some people call it scholasticism, I would call it quite more casuistry in terms of people that do law, uh, understand that you take one law and you build a case on that, and then from that uh, result in the, the trial, you you build the next case and so on, and that that was sort of the methodology of how they were building their theology, um, and that they were looking at, at all these tiny little legal um, uh, formulations that had been already uh, done, rather than looking at the scripture itself. So what he did was he went back, and because of his uh, classical background and his inf- his uh, emphasis on um, the patristics, he went back to Chrysostom and Augustine, and those were really the two main sources of influence in his life. Um, Augustine, he, from Augustine, he really got doctrine and theology more, um, and he he imitated his his logic and and the way that he would write out expositions of of ideas and uh, sovereignty of God, nature of man, election, uh, things like that, and and sola gratia. Um, And that particularly shows up in a lot of his uh, writings concerning the the Lord's Supper, when he's writing letters back and forth to Luther. Um, From Chrysostom, um, he got a uh, more of a emphasis on redemptive historical uh, flow and covenant, uh, Christ's humanity, uh, typology, uh, the idea of continu- uh, uh, how you employ the idea of continuing covenants. Uh, he left off uh, philosophizing, for example, that kind of had entered into a lot of the medieval um, uh, approach. He uh, did more moral applications. You know, a lot of the things that you found in Chrysostom was called the golden mouth. He was one of the most fine preachers of uh, the Word of God in all of church history. So he went back to him and uh, got a lot of of the things that he was doing and employed them. So he really took the best of these two men. in terms of theology and an uh, approach and themes and emphasis, and uh, put them together, and ended up with this marvelous uh, uh, hermeneutic that comes out in all of his um, commentaries, in particular. Wow. What's unique to the section that you 
that you've included in your dissertation. What are some important features of his commentary on Isaiah 36 and 37? Uh, I think one of the things that you can see in it uh, is um, Scripture interpreting Scripture, um, you know, so that you have that <coughs> emphasis that is uh, very much part of the Reformation, but also uh, an undergirding of how he sees everything. You also see um, a real emphasis on wanting to talk to the heart. Um, his his writing is so unbelievably edifying because he, not only does he understand God, he, he walks with God, he knows God, and then he's able to bring it right into the center of your own heart and say, this is who God is and this is what that means for us as children of God. Uh, so, um, for example, when he's talking talking about the Rav Shaka, um, tempting uh, Hezekiah um, and the people of uh, Jerusalem. He says, this is, this is just typical of, of how a satanic attack goes. And then he, he takes you back to um, how, how does Satan attack you. And for example, he'll say, you know, one of the most horrible things for a child of God is to think that they're not loved, that God has abandoned them. And that that is something that Satan will, will bring to a Christian over and over again. And so he says, you know, God has abandoned you, and he's given me the, the uh, authority to attack you and destroy you. And, um, and he says, here, this is, this is Satan. And he not only is doing it there, but he does it to us. So he brings the Word of God right into your heart and says, see, recognize this, understand this is Satan, this is not God, because God says, he will not touch my child. You know, you are my child, and no matter how much he shakes his head at you or, or kicks up dust, um, you are mine, and you have um, the undergirding of my hand and the protection of my robe over you. And that's the kind of thing where he, he brings to bear the, the heart of God onto the heart of the believer so that you are incredibly edified. And he, um, I would say that one of the things he does the best is strengthens faith, uh, that he knows, um, he knows God and he knows uh, the, uh, the child of God in such a way that he knows how to bring that sort of the beatific vision of God to bear on you in such a way that you delight in God. So it's very Christocentric, and over and over again you will see him talking in such a way that everything points to Christ, and isn't that, isn't that the delight of a Christian's heart? Isn't that what we all love? I mean, if we are born again, that is our, our true delight, is to see our Savior, and he, that's what he does. He he uh, displays him in all of his glory. He doesn't sit there and say, now you should do this and you should do that. But he says, look, isn't he beautiful? And that, that desire and love of, and gratitude towards uh, our Savior is such a, a great um, a desire and, and attitude, motivation of our hearts that you don't need to say you should do this or you should do that. Um, because when we see him as he is, uh, 
in sort of, as I said, almost this beatific vision that he puts forth of this Christocentric theme that you delight in, in wanting to love him back and serve him. So I think that's the, one of the strengths of how he, um, how he writes in that. And it's shown in this particular little, little piece of these two historical theological uh, chapters of uh, uh, the attack on Hezekiah in 36 and 37. That's quite but that's what beautiful. I found. That's yeah. <laughs> I can't add much more to that. It's just so encouraging to hear about uh, Ecolampadius and the usefulness and the beauty in his work. How could people study him further? Of course, they can pick up Reformer of Basil, the book here in the dissertation, but if, if they want to read Ecolampadius directly, is there anything available? Do you have to know German? Um, um, what What is the state of scholarship and uh, editions on his work? Okay, well... Um my my work is the only thing uh, that has tra- been translated into mm-hmm. English. That's it. Which is why I included in the book, as long as it might be, those two chapters of yeah. the the um, uh, commentary, because that I wanted people to see uh, the riches of uh, the treasure that that lies there, waiting to be um, uh, revealed. Uh, there isn't anything. And there's nothing in English except this. Um, Is it in Latin little, or his works? Yes, he wrote in Latin. Mm-hmm. Yes, so you'd have to to find everything in Latin. I think uh, you know there there are some things online now in terms of because it was, it's so old. You can I think you can get it in Gugesberg. You can get it in um, I think Calvin College has a lot of his works online. The Reformation out of Zurich, uh, the theological. Uh, Reformation Theological what is it called? Reformation Theological Institute of, in in Zurich has a lot of things on. Uh, used to have them on microfiche, and, and I think they've probably made them available in other ways as well. But it's in Latin, and uh, it's just waiting, <laughs> just waiting to be translated. Um, and all the 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 comparison of his um, his letters back and forth, his correspondence with Luther all of his uh, influence on Calvin in every area, all that's waiting. I just, it's a, if anybody wants a, an area of research that hasn't been uh, muddied by over-trotting of, of, of other work, this is it. I mean, this is just wide open, nothing's done on it kind of thing. Well, I'm no doubt there are going to be a lot of people listening that would probably be interested in finding a topic for research or, or discussion. And so we really appreciate you um, encouraging our listeners that way, and maybe somebody will pick up this torch and run with it. Uh, yes. I would be delighted. That would be an answer to prayer. Mm. <laughs> Dr. Porthers, do you know, in the same line, um, who outside of the U.S. maybe in a non-English uh, institute or institution is working on Akleonpanas? Is there anyone you're aware of? Um, yes, there is one man who just recently came out with a 300-page uh, work in German. Um, let me see if I can find uh, Olaf Kuhr, uh, K-U-H-R. Um, and he did uh, Calvin and Basel, The Significance of Echo and Potius in the Basel Discipline Ordinance, um, and Die Machtius, uh, Bans und der Busse, um, that that's the 300 page one um 
that would be very, very helpful, KUHR is K-U-H-R. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, uh, there has not, I mean, Carl Hanner, who actually was my professor at the University of Basel, has done some work, but not very much, actually. And um, there is also Akira Jumura, who is, um, a re- he's retired now, and was a professor in, in uh, Japan. He has done a few, a couple of little things. Um, one where he compared the commentary on um, Romans between Calvin and Echolampadius. I wish he had um, translated both and put them so that people could read them. But he um, did the work himself and then just did an analysis. So there are bits and pieces of translation there that you can look at. Um, other than that, there's just not much that's been done at all frankly. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, it's been a delight to hear more about Eclampadius and and your work in his life, and we really appreciate all that you've done, and especially your time that you've taken today to join us. Thanks so much. Well, just to uh, say that I might uh, build up faith as well as uh, Eclampadius did. Yes, I think you have, and we—that's our prayer as well. That people, as people listen, that they would be tremendously encouraged, and uh, and come to see Jesus uh, ever more clearly, as was Eclampadius's hope. Um, if you'd like more information, uh, you can get a hold of us. We can try to connect you. Um, but um, you would also, if you're listening, would like to read more. You can uh, through the usual academic means. If you have a library or interlibrary loan or access to dissertation databases. You can find uh, uh, Diane Poitras's dissertation there. Uh, you can also pick up the book here, Reformer of Basel, The Life, Thought, and Influence of Johannes Ecolampadius from Reformation Heritage Books. Uh, delightful little book, um, and, but yet very rich and um and easy treatment. to get. It's, uh, it's on Amazon, so very yeah, easy you can to get. Yeah, you get on Amazon or WTSbooks.com or straight from uh, Reformation Heritage. Easy ways to find it, and uh, we encourage you to pick that up. Uh, Jason's available online in a couple places, but I'll point you to RUF.org, Reformed University Fellowship. He's with RUF International down at Texas A&M University, and he has some information on the RUF site about himself and ways to get in hold of him. Uh, we're online at reformedforum.org where you'll find information about all of our programs as well as everything we're up to in terms of new projects. And all of our other episodes you can download uh, for free to your computer, to your iPod, iPad, an Android device, whatever. We want to make Reformed resources available to you in as easy a way as, as possible. And uh, if you have some ideas about that, please email us at mail at reformedforum.org. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>